everybody welcome to another episode in our war report series this is the first episode covering the israel hamas war joining me today is john from the defense bulletin and i'm also joined by shep eric shepler he is our new centcom central asia middle east desk chief for bulletin from the borderlands and i'm having them on because we recently did a bulletin review and i really like what both of them had to say about this conflict so that's why i'm bringing them on today before we get started check out the legal minds journal a veteran and active duty publication focusing on foreign and military affairs art and culture take a look at the journal's bulletin from the borderlands a bi-weekly foreign affairs publication from multiple talented intelligence analysts and independent journalists head over to lethalmindsjournal.substack.com or instagram at lethal.minds.journal to see more also please consider supporting us on patreon patreon.com slash analyze educate ko-fi ko-fi.com slash analyze educate or at substack analyze educate.substack.com you can find all those links in the show notes below also if you support us on patreon or on Substack, you will be able to listen to this episode before anybody else, as with the rest of our mainline episodes. And with that being said, we will head into this. Hey, everybody. I'm here with John from Defense Bulletin. I'm also here with Shep. He's one of our new contributors on the Bulletin from the Borderlands. Shep, you want to introduce yourself real quick? Yeah, guys. Um, Eric Shepler, go by Shep. Um, Prime Marine Corps uh, in another life, a few other things. I uh, work on a uh, security consulting project for the for the U.S. government in the Middle East right now, currently, uh, though I am on the injured reserve list at the moment. But uh, anyway, glad to be here talking with you. Yeah, I'm glad we could have you here. And we tried to get Northern on here, but he couldn't, uh, couldn't make the time, but that's all right. We'll get him on another one here shortly. So, of course, we're going to be talking about the Israel-Hamas war today um and i feel like even calling it that is kind of an injustice because it it is like shaping up to be this regional thing but but whatever that's what most people know it as right this thing began on october 7th so obviously it's it's been about three weeks so we've kind of let things develop further and and get a handle on what exactly happened and what some some of the uh implications are and such like that and i guess we could start off with the casualty numbers as of yesterday, I don't think they've been updated since then. And these are reported casualties, right? So, um, you know, kind of take this with a grain of salt, especially when it comes to Gaza. These numbers are coming from the Gazan Health Ministry, which is run by Hamas. Hamas is technically a political party, and they're the ones that control the Gaza Strip, right? So looking at their casualties, we got 5,093 killed and 15,288 injured. Now, keep in mind, again, Gazan Health Ministry, it's run by Hamas. Included in those uh, killed numbers are the alleged 500 plus from that uh, that hospital explosion in Gaza City. I think it was a week ago as of today. Um, and obviously, we know like the real number is nowhere near 500 that was, that was killed in that. We also know it wasn't an Israeli airstrike either, but those numbers are included in the in the official uh gaza reported casualty count looking at israel we got 1403 killed and 5434 injured and a quick note on israel as well that does not include the 1500 ish 
Hamas fighters and other Palestinian faction fighters that they found in Israel that were killed after they um made that incursion on the 7th. Looking at the West Bank, we got 95 killed and 1,828 injured. Most of the killed are um, Palestinians. They've, there have been a lot of clashes between Palestinians and the IDF, Israeli police, and also Israeli settlers in the West Bank. You have a situation where armed Israeli settlers are going into Palestinian towns and causing trouble, for lack of a better term, but included in those counts also do uh, also are some Israelis, including um, Israeli security forces. In Lebanon, you got 41 killed, nine injured. Most of the killed are Hezbollah fighters. Um, I think you also have one uh, journalist, one Lebanese journalist from, I think it was AFP, or maybe it was Reuters. No, it was Reuters, and then a few others as well. Syria, you have two killed. Uh, those are some armed factions that were clashing with Israeli forces along the border. In Egypt, you have nine injured. That came from uh, an IDF tank, had a negligent discharge into an Egyptian border post and injured nine guys. That's that's pretty much it as far as that situation goes. Egypt and, and Israel have an understanding that that was an accident, right? And things, things happen, fog of war and, and such. So total, you have 6,634 killed, uh, 22,568 people injured. This is certainly shaping up to be the, um, in terms of casualties, the worst war since uh, definitely Yom Kippur War, right, 1973. And obviously this thing is nowhere nowhere finished. So that's where we are as, as far as casualties go. That's what we're looking at. Yeah, and a quick thing to note, um, about an hour ago, apparently Central Command, uh, CENTCOM told uh, NBC News that two dozen American soldiers have been injured so far in the uh, ongoing attacks and strikes on U.S. bases in the region. So that's like yeah. breaking right now. So, And that is interesting because I remember at some point, maybe it was yesterday or over the weekend, I was gone over the weekend, so I'm still kind of catching up a little bit. But originally they said, originally they said there were several casualties and they didn't really expand on that. And then after they said there were actually no casualties, but now they're saying there, there are some like you're saying. So that's um, interesting. We've had, to my knowledge, at least 10 strikes on U.S. forces in Iraq, and that's coming from Iranian-backed militias, uh, particularly the uh, PMU, the Popular Mobilization Units, or PMF, Popular Mobilization Forces, same thing. And then we've had three strikes in Syria, and those are also claimed by Iraqi Iranian-backed militias. And I know there was um, an American contractor that actually died because he got a heart attack when he was running for cover during one of these attacks. So that's the only death if you if you want to attribute that to the attacks as far as U.S. forces go. Yeah, and they're saying just injuries, so, and they haven't really elaborated. This is, this is also just breaking as we're recording this, so so this is all preliminary uh, knowledge right now. Um, it says, uh, I'm just going to quote it real quick uh, from the article. It says, 20 American personnel sustained minor injuries on the 18th of October when at least two one-way attack drones targeted Altan uh, military base in southern Syria. So I, I don't know if that's, if this is, um, they if they all sustained these injuries at this one base, it sounds like that's what they're saying. So maybe I guess the other attacks up until then didn't have any uh casualties at the uh bases so but it sounds like it's just from that one base in southern syria so 
Okay. Yeah, the, the details haven't been particularly great. Um, I know you've also had attacks, obviously, in northeastern Syria, which is, to my knowledge, where most of our forces are, um, you know, working with the Kurds, the the SDF and and such, at like the Conoco oil field and other places uh, around Derizor government. That's where most of them are. But then, of course, you have that the uh, garrison there in Altamf, which is completely separate from the, the Kurds. Um, yeah, that's what you have going on there. So I guess we could we could get into how this whole thing happened. Obviously, it's a very dynamic situation. Um, and like I was telling you guys before we started recording, I wanted you on here because when we did the bulletin review a couple of weeks ago after this thing first really kicked off, I, I liked what both of you had to say. I thought you guys had a, a nice little back and forth going on there. And on October 7th, this this really caught the world by surprise. I remember I was I was getting off work and uh I saw like there was, you know, rocket attacks. I can't remember which which city got hit. Um and it was kind of random. It was like I couldn't really tell like what caused this, but hey, it happens, right? Rock rocket attacks. It's just uh I mean, it's kind of a normal thing for Israel, right? And uh, a couple people got injured or something like that. And I didn't really think much of it. I was actually uh, at my work. We pay attention to like global events. I won't say the company I work for, right? But we're a global company and we kind of make sure that nothing that happens around the world is going to impact our company because we have employees all over the world. And we actually had a guy um, like frantically calling saying like, hey, I like I need you guys to, you know, get me evacuated out of here blah, 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 and all that stuff. And I remember talking to my coworkers, I was like, what is this guy talking about? Like, this this happens like all the time. This is nothing out of the ordinary, yeah. right? I mean, just run to a shelter and wait for it to be over and that's fine. You don't need to be evacuated, dude. Um, and then I got off work and I actually checked my notifications from Atlas and I saw that there was incursions into Israel. And I remember thinking like, holy shit, I don't know if I've, I don't know if I've ever seen that before at yeah. least from what i could remember um and then the situation just kept getting worse and worse because at first it was like oh there's you know 50 to 60 guys i made it through uh reports of some wounded right clashes along border towns blah 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 but then it obviously expands to where like you have entire border towns and some cities that are like literally getting taken over by hamas gunmen and we now know that at least 1500 fighters were able to get across the border in a matter of three days right because it took yeah. at least 72 hours for the idf to even get full control over their borders it was also a holiday weekend in israel right so you got to imagine that played um played a role right and and i guess why they were completely sure. caught by surprise um let me let me ask you guys this and obviously this is pure speculation but i mean how in your opinion, how does an intelligence failure like this to this magnitude happen? Because obviously that's what this is, right? Israel has a reputation for having some of the best intel agencies in the world. Uh, how could something like this happen? I mean, other than complacency, right? I, I don't know. Um, or and, and sometimes I know, I mean, I'm not, you know, from the intelligence community, but, you know, I've heard people, you know, uh, former intel guys and things like that. People are so in. You know, they talk about all you need is one person to drop the ball, one person who has a key job to drop the ball. And uh, the, things like this can happen, right, if someone's not consistently staying on top of things. Um, that's the 
that's honestly what I would say about it. It, it could be complacency, I think. I, I would personally think that, you know, around, you know, Yom Kippur and, and these other holidays, they would already have a heightened sense of just uh, readiness, I would think. But, yeah. you know, I, I can't speak for the IDF and what their readiness and force posture was at the time. Yeah. Shep, you got any opinions? Yeah, I I, um, I agree. I, I think it's a common, I think it could be a combination of things. I mean, sometimes us is um, either, e even those of us that are in the community, um, you know, I'm, I'm adjacent to the community. I'm not really in it, but you guys may be. Um, I think we, sometimes we ascribe a, a level of competency to those organizations, especially organizations that have, that have made a business of cultivating a reputation like Israel's intelligence forces, like the Shin Bet, like the Mossad. You know, we kind of forget their agencies just like any others that, you know, they're, they may have 10 successes in the last decade of preventing actions just like this that we don't know about that are kept classified for whatever reason. And they, that gives them, you know, a 90% success rate, which in any college class is an A grade. But, uh, you know, in this case, you know, anybody can miss one. And then at the other end of the spectrum, uh, you know, this isn't the first time that the Israelis have been caught unprepared. It's not even the first time on that holiday they've been caught unprepared. You know, 1973, uh, they they were caught uh, largely by surprise. There's some there's some discussions that you know the the, the Mossad you know briefed the government at that time and the government didn't do anything etc cetera, etc. Cetera. Regardless, whatever reason that 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 is historically known as a surprise attack, a war that began with a surprise attack. So uh, it's not the first time for them, and it's not the first time for for those agencies. Um, you know, and, and whether whether the Mossad and the Shin Bits reputation is as valid as they would like the world to believe or is that it is um you know you can be the best intelligence agency in the world and and you know, you've only got to be wrong uh or be caught asleep at the wheel or be caught not looking in the right direction one time for something like this to happen and um now now you have everybody questioning your your competency yeah yeah 100 um shep when we did the bulletin review a couple weeks ago i'll, I'll bring this up again later because I really liked what you had to say, but we were kind of talking about the political situation in Israel. And I, I'm certainly not an expert. I'll, I'll just say that. I don't really know if any of us are. are. Yeah. yeah. I, don't, I don't think any of us are in, in this arena, but um, obviously looking at Israel's political situation in the past year plus, um, it's certainly not, it was not the most united country political, politically speaking, excuse me before this attack happened i i wonder if maybe that played a little bit of a role in just them being caught off by surprise and by them i mean israel's uh security apparatus because obviously this this thing particularly that was going on with judicial reform right really drove a wedge um in israeli society and it even affected their security establishment right you had a ton of reservists that were refusing sure. to show up for duty out of you know protest sure. of the situation yeah, i wonder absolutely. if that played a role i don't see how it could have helped at all whether it played a role or not uh when you have that type of an, and from what i understand the level of division that they were experiencing in their uh political society and society at large is uh every bit as um significant as as what we're experiencing in the united states currently maybe even more so um from the way it's been explained to me this is the, the the most um extreme right wing government that israel has ever had as uh and especially uh regarding the the palestinian question um 
and they they have been you know the the Netanyahu government has been trying to uh, consolidate power and uh, like any like any um, statesman would consolidate power in any way they can they've been having a lot of pushback from the center left and left side of their political political spectrum um, you know that spilled over into the street as everybody saw uh, and I'm sure that 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 protest we saw in the streets uh, impacted at all levels of the bureaucracy, and that would include the intelligence establishment and, and uh, would, you know, just like when anything else, when people have uh, their attentions focused elsewhere, uh, it's easy to miss things. It's easy to miss that that cable from overseas uh, from a from a friend that you went to Yale with in the, you know, in Egyptian intelligence or, you know, that email that you got or, um, you know, that that two month old notification on, uh, uh, you know, uh, Palestinians training in paragliding techniques in uh, in northern Iran. You know, it, it's easy to miss things like that when your attentions are um, are focused elsewhere. So I, I don't see how it could have helped them, and, it, and it's very possible that it that it at least contributed uh, to what we're seeing now. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. One hundred percent. Yeah, and I think there's also you know I've heard speculation as well, right? That um. The West Bank was a, was their primary focus at the time when it came to you know uh, deterring any type of uh, action by the Palestinian nation as a whole. Um, so because I I've been hearing that kind of repeated. I don't know if that's just a talking point or if that's actually a legitimate a legitimate point that's been said by intelligence officials. I know that obviously um, Israel is not the same as the United States. For like you know ABC will drop uh, an article where some intelligence officials giving you a, a random tidbit. That's not really a normal thing. We haven't really heard a lot from that community in Israel since this, which is granted. I mean, arguably, why why should we, right? Um, uh, so uh, we haven't heard directly from them, but U.S. intelligence officials have kind of stated that that could be a reason. And we've only really heard coulds or ifs, right, so far. And much of this is still going to be speculation. A lot of this we're not going to know for, for years to come, you know, what really went on. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you brought up the West Bank because... Um, particularly the the minister of national security right now is a guy named uh, Itamar Ben Gabir, and he is he himself is an Israeli settler in the West Bank, right? And he's known as like a, a hardline like right wing dude. I mean, not a big fan of the Palestinians by any means. Really wants to um, I guess increase the number of settlements in the West Bank, right? So I. I know there's been talk, like you were saying, of the current government focusing on that much more than Gaza. And I mean, looking at Gaza, I mean, they probably thought, hey, you know, we'll we'll get some rocket launches, shoot them down with the Iron Dome. If we need to launch some airstrikes, we'll do that. Right. That's what happened in 2021. You had, I think, off the top of my head, 4,400 rocket launches in 11 days, which is a large number. But and there were people killed, right? But nothing to the nothing to the amount that were killed in this in this recent war. And Israel did what they needed to do. You know, they shot them down with the Iron Dome, launched their airstrikes, and that was pretty much it. They called it a day. So I'm sure there's definitely some people that figured, hey, we got Gaza bottled up. We don't really need to focus on this that much, as much as we do the West Bank, where Israel's are Israelis, excuse me, are in much uh, closer proximity to Palestinians and there's uh, a lot more tension. Yeah, yeah, I, I think another thing, uh, this, I'll bring it up a kind of a conversation on the phone me and Shep were having the other day. Uh, and he, uh, you sent me a photo of that, um, that uh, the, the rifle, right? I'm, but the, it was what they were using it for. And I've seen multiple reports of that, right? They've taken out surveillance assets and, and 
other things like that, mainly stationary targets and outposts and things like that. And so even if, right, um, you know, these guys weren't necessarily asleep at the watch, if, if your outpost, right, if your little cupola, right, on a tower gets hit with an RPG and you're decimated, you all of a sudden, that that area, right, is now kind of a dark zone, right? And if they took out the surveillance assets as well, that's now a dark zone. So now they don't know what's going on. And that could have also hampered a reaction by the IDF as well. Um, so, which also just goes to show, and I think we mentioned this as well before um, in the bulletin review, right, that the level of planning that went into this, right, we saw things like um, vehicle identification cars and things like that showing weak points of uh, IDF vehicles, um, how to operate uh, certain IDF small arms and things like that if you were to come across them. I mean, really detailed stuff that we don't necessarily see Hamas normally doing in, in their day-to-day, -day, if you could say, operations. Yeah, he's ab he's absolutely right. I know the video we're talking about, and and the one one kind of advantage, at least if you're if you're somebody that you know is into is into this monitoring this type of stuff uh, recreationally for, or for a living, or if you're uh, you know on the opposing side, is that um, uh, the the Palestinian organizations, both uh, Hezbollah and Hamas, like to seem to like to take their actions and put a lot of information out there onto the internet. For, for propaganda type purposes, but you can you can gain a lot of information on that. There, and the one we're talking about is uh, Hezbollah was using using a, a DM rifle, um, you know, a a what looked like a um, you know an SVD type rifle. I would I in part to tell with only the the, the the small fraction of what we were able to see, but they were they were using it to take out some uh, some static surveillance ISR assets on the border. So you know you if but that's not a an easy thing to to do. You have to train to do that. You have to train somebody to do that. Uh, that's somebody that has a, a a rifle with an optic on it that understands how to use it. That understands how to engage that long range. That's a skill that needs to be taught. Um, and also, that's you, you know you're having your ISR close enough to be engaged in in rifle range. Um, so you know there's a couple things to look at there uh, that I would say you know Hezbollah I know. Well, from what I've been told um, in IDF uh, conversations, they have always thought more of their capabilities than they have of Hamas. I, I believe they've thought that they've, they've respected their capabilities a bit more. They've thought that they were the more significant threat from a tactical standpoint. Um, but again, in seeing the stuff that that Hamas, I mean, from a moral standpoint, of course, it's it's deplorable. And we can get into that a little later about the the psychology of the people that you'd have to recruit for an operation like this and what they targeted. But from a tactical standpoint, and again, just sticking to that, they pulled off a very successful operation and they pulled it off well. Um, and they, it showed that they really invested a lot of time in their, in their training, um, you know, and, and in their, their, they used just little things. They were, you know, they were using Western style room clearing tactics, uh, moving through buildings and moving around buildings. Um, you know, there's something that's been out here in the West for a long, you know, something small, something that's been out here in the West in the shooting circles a long time since Magpul came out, a certain way to grip your rifle at a foregrip. And you saw them doing that um, on their GoPro footage, which means that they, at the very least, they've been, you know, surfing YouTube and looking at how how the you know how the West does things militarily and adopting those tactics, techniques, and procedures for themselves. So it's kind of interesting. I don't. I I doubt that. I doubt that any IDF uh, guy who's engaging them would think the same thing about about their capabilities going forward. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And you know, a quick note on that. I'm sure to an extent, at least, they've been able to benefit from 
really the vast amount of combat experience that that region in general has. I mean, the, this region has been at war for, uh, you know, God knows how long, at least at least 20 years consecutively, probably more than that. And there's plenty of combat experience to go around. I'm sure they've gotten help from, uh, you know, Quds Force, IRGC and factions in Syria and, and whatnot. Plenty of combat experience to go around to um, give them a hand in, in that training. Just a, a quick note, this is kind of an, anecdotal, right? But I listened to um, a podcast by a guy named Daryl Cooper, a uh, podcast is Martyr Made, and he was like a former DOD contractor. Um, yeah, and, he's great. Yeah, he's great. I, I love his uh, I love his podcast. And he, in my opinion, has like the best takes on this whole conflict. I think he has the most thorough and fence-striding history of the entirety of the conflict um that i've that i've personally been exposed to i i listened to his multi-part series from from beginning to end and uh you know which we can get into later like you know how everybody and i'll i'll quote him everybody in this conflict wants to start the videotape at a certain point in the movie without watching without watching it from the beginning um and you know again that's that's what's happening that's what's happening here but yeah he has a great product he puts out a great he puts out a great uh he puts out some great content yeah for for those of you that want to listen to that series of his i think it's fear and loathing in the new jerusalem it's like a six or seven part series 30 ish hours worth of uh worth of content and it's great it personally like changed my entire perspective on this conflict because sure. I, I think most people have an opinion without knowing anything about it. So if that's something that interests you guys. I definitely suggest checking it out, but he did another podcast. I think it was probably with Jocko or something like that. And he was a DOD contractor before, right? And he did plenty of trips to Israel, helping them with their air defense systems and stuff like that. And again, this is anecdotal, but he talked to a lot of IDF guys about some of their like regional concerns right and he said that almost nobody he talked to brought up Hamas they all brought up Hezbollah at least for the most part and like respected their capabilities and were all of the opinion that at some point there's going to be another legit war with Hezbollah and it like it will be deciding like whether it's Israel that gets knocked out or Hezbollah that gets knocked out like that'll be it there'll be one final war but almost nobody talked about Hamas and here we are now and I think the interesting thing of what you guys are talking about is it just like we're talking about this stuff. This stuff is a way, you know, you can find this on any way you listen to podcasts or YouTube. Or it's a good point that Shep made before, right? If that's at the very least of what they're doing training wise is looking at YouTube videos, right? Uh, Iran or whoever planned this, right? I mean, I think it's pretty, we can pretty uh, much say this was, you know, Iran's by with and through some other entities, you know, kind of committed this attack. Um but, you know, if, if we're privy to this, Iran is probably also privy to the idea that, right, Hezbollah was seen as the main threat um, and, and, and planned uh, thusly. So um, uh, because I didn't, I think for the first couple of hours when I was hearing this scale of this attack was coming not from the north, from Hezbollah, but from the Gaza Strip, I didn't really believe it. I thought it was kind of, until the videos began coming out is when I was really skeptical because I was like, there's no way Hamas is going to be able to to do this um and then the paragliders you know videos of the paragliders and things like that um and so i think the kind of just sum up what i was trying to say though is that right if it, it, iran is probably privy to the, the same thinking and the same uh not ideology but the kind of like maybe the lapse in in uh how they thought about hamas 
um, and then essentially built Hamas up to be this force that was comparable to Hezbollah or or um, other forces with that are more competent and more capable within in the region. So um, I think that's an, definitely an interesting take. Yeah, going back to when this whole thing started, Hamas is really able to take advantage of those rocket barrages that I kind of mentioned earlier. I think within the first day, they had already fired something around 2,000 rockets, you know, and they, they start with the rocket barrages and then they basically use everybody taking cover from those barrages to attack border posts and, and slip through that way, right? Everybody was, you know, taking cover distracted by the rockets and then they slip through the border and that's really how they start their incursion oh yeah just a quick note they, they showed the uh some of the interviews or uh, interrogations i'm not really sure it, it seemed more like an interview i think the interrogations might have taken place prior to that um but they showed some of the interrogations of these uh of some of these fighters that they captured you could tell some of them were clearly injured and in pain and stuff like that but what they were what they were the i think the theme across all of their statements was that we were told to, like this you target civilians you either kill or capture them one was specifically mentioning how his commander called him multiple times and said oh get this this type and such and such a girl or a guy um stick to um elderly women and children uh to capture and but all the men though across the board multiple of them said that the men they needed to kill them but right? you kill all the military age males Everyone else, you if you if you kill them because they're they're uh, either resisting you too much, you kill them, and if they're not resisting that much, you kidnap them and bring them back across the border. Um, and so that was definitely a directive that went out, cross like force wide, if you could call you know like force wide, but um, definitely a force wide directive that went out. So I mean, that was definitely a. I think the military installations and the military forces was a was the primary target to then kind of take them out of the fight early and and the secondary, but. That the main target was the um, was obviously civilian populace, and so and so even now, Israel is still concerned that some gunmen may still be hiding in the border area. Right, every now and again, you get a guy uh, get caught in like one of the towns trying to cause trouble, or you have like somebody trying to cross the border back into Gaza. So this is a the issue. This is still an issue. Right, this is still a still a concern that you have like these isolated guys or or teams or whatever that are still like able to cause some trouble inside Israel. Pretty pretty big issue uh, for sure. Uh, let's get into some of Israel's retaliatory measures. Obviously, they've launched a massive uh, airstrike campaign. Right, that's that's really where where they got started with, and we've had hundreds of sorties being flown, launching airstrikes, I mean, all, all over the place, right? I think North Gaza is probably the the area that's gotten hit the most. Yeah. Um, and that that's also under evacuation orders as well, or evacuation directives or whatever, whatever you want to call them. Um, Israel recently ordered, yeah, North Gaza, basically Gaza north of Wadi Gaza, which kind of separates north and south to evacuate. And that's a million people. Right. Um, initially, they told them they only had 24 hours, but they they kind of went back on that and said, we'll give ample time for people to evacuate. Right. But obviously, like not everybody evacuated. Hamas is like keeping some people from evacuating and some other people are just stubborn. Right. And again, it's a million people 
in one of the most densely populated places on earth right it's not a not an easy thing to do to evacuate that many people to to an area half that size half the size of gaza um Israeli Navy has also taken action as well, right? I know they've they've launched uh, naval strikes on some areas and they've been guarding the coastline, trying to, uh, you know, deter infiltrators and saboteurs along the coast as well. Um, we've had artillery strikes as well, both cannon and rocket batteries. And I know they used a M270 a multiple launch rocket system for the first time and some amount of years in Gaza. I can't remember. It may have been since 06, actually, the last time they used one of those systems. That's just an interesting thing to note. And then we've also had some localized raids uh, using, you know, infantry and special forces into the Gaza Strip and also the West Bank, too. We talked a little bit about the fighting over there, but that's pretty much where things are right now. There, I noticed there has been, and, and much like there always is with stuff like this, is, you know, and I don't really blame casual observers for this i do blame journalists a bit more but you know in regards to the weaponry being used in in some of this not just on the hamas side as we've been discussing but especially on the israeli side which is a bit more you have to be a bit more um knowledgeable i guess about certain things to really to really get into it but there's already been misinformation uh put out there uh about about certain types of things you know the the white phosphorus argument already got put out about you know israel using white phosphorus and specifically to uh you know to do some type of incendiary effects on people it's against this rule it's against that rule and that always gets thrown out when footage comes out of them using um 155 basic eject base ejecting uh marking rounds that make a very pretty looking triangular shaped uh smoke cloud uh, uh when they when they eject their base over their intended target and you know you have to you have to kind of really sit people down and explain munitions to them and say that even if they were trying to trying to burn people alive with white phosphorus that's not the weapon they would use that's uh, specifically to screen troop movements or you know uh put a smoke screen in front of a potential sniper hide area or something like that but every time somebody sees that they they extrapolate this argument that doesn't doesn't really have any basis in fact um you know the multiple launch rocket system uh when people hear that they think of some type of uh soviet katusha type system you know where you know uh all all unguided uh mass fires uh where and i'm not saying that israel's not doing that they could very well be but uh you know the I, and I forget the nomenclature of the rockets that, that system uses. It's the same. It's the same rockets that the HIMAR and the Marine Corps uses. But they're all they're all GPS guided. You know, they all have they're all ten digit capable. Um, they do have unguided variety, but I, I highly doubt that Israel is is firing unguided munitions of that nature into Gaza right now because they just they they want to be more precise. They want to be more perfect. You know, effective. There's a reason that that you know major modern armies don't really use a lot of unguided weaponry if they don't have to or in, if they're or if they have uh precision weapons available uh it's because they're more effective you know you see an army like like the russian army now is kind of their stocks of precision weaponry are depleted and there was they have to resort to using that older stuff um but you know you, you see a lot of misinformation come out all of a sudden when people see stuff like that because they one they don't really have the knowledge and you can excuse that but uh you know journalists of the professional nature start selling a narrative that doesn't may it may very well exist it might exist but you're basing it on something that isn't really true 
Yeah, no, I'm I'm glad you brought that up. And uh, for context, these MLR MLRS systems are like the same systems that Ukraine has gotten from us, right? So these are incredibly accurate. They're not like rocket barrage systems like the BM twenty one Grad or something like that. Exactly. I, th- I think you both make a good point, especially about the weaponry. And then I think also SOPs, right? You know, the, op- the standard operating procedures that, you know, well, when something happens, and I think one thing uh, that we're seeing highlighted a lot incorrectly by ger- by journalists across the board, right, is, you know, what do you do? How does towers counter battery fire? You know, kind of how do you go about that? Um, because I think we saw people talking a lot about it late or early last week when the those journalists were killed on the border with Lebanon, right? And so, the thing, my idea, my thinking, right, personally, right, would be, and this may be a bit of a hot take, but was that if you are, right, um, adversary adjacent and they're firing mortars um, at the Israelis or at whoever, you need to expect accurate counter battery fire to be coming imminently, right? That's the whole idea of, right, shoot and scoop, right? That's why we see in Ukraine, right, that they, they unhook their guns or that's why they want so much self propelled artillery um, because you, you want to be able to fire and get out of there because counter battery fire, especially from somebody like Israel, who, I mean, that's, they, they, they've been doing this for good God knows how long, right? Um, and they've been doing it effectively. Um, and so I think people were really confu- confused, not only confused, but they were calling out the Israeli armed forces and saying, oh, you know, this is so horrible. This is a war crime that they would kill these journalists. And they, they frame it as if they they targeted these journalists in an artillery strike. No, they were just firing back. They were fired at them. And if, you, and if you're sitting 12 meters from a, I mean, we, uh, most of us saw the video, right? You can hear the shrapnel from the already impacts whizzing by the camera and you can hear him whizzing by if you're that close if you're that close to um i mean at some point you know you kind of stop trying to get the shot and get out of there it's just common sense so um i I thought that was another thing that people consistently like even before this conflict have been mischaracterizing about warfare in general we see it in ukraine war um when uh you know civilian uh civilians are somewhere where they maybe shouldn't be and i'm not saying like I'm not saying it's bad that you didn't leave your house, but if that area is getting pummeled by artillery, um, maybe don't be there, you know. Um, but I, I think counter battery fire is a big. That's kind of like a big pet peeve of mine when people are like, oh well, you know, they, they tried to target these journalists or these civilians. No, because no one's trying to waste ammunition and and manpower um, and just in time um, trying to target um, someone who's not firing at you. You want to kind of stop that um, incoming fire as fast as possible. That's the whole idea of counter-battery fire. And so we're going to see this a lot more, I think, and even more if, if the ground campaign goes on as well. I'm going to see a lot of non-combatants get killed. I mean, that, that thus is the nature of warfare. Um, it, it's not necessarily a good thing, but it, it's going to happen, right? I mean, look at the Battle of Berlin, um, Battle of Stalingrad. Um, the civilian casualties in the Second World War alone dwarfed that of combatants, so. Yeah, he's absolutely right. And, and you know, it's a traditional artillery, I mean, with a few advanced exceptions that, you know, that kind of don't really apply here. But traditional artillery is is not known for its accuracy. It's not the most accurate system in the world, which is why yeah. everybody spends so much money on trying to make it more accurate to keep it relevant. So somebody getting killed in an artillery strike, um, especially, a, a you know, is is oftentimes, a, it, it, it's, it has to be accidental almost. Um, because it, it's very difficult to to make traditional artillery accurate. You know, you, it's an area fire weapon, and it's called an area fire weapon for a reason. You know, the the, the way that every time Israel's using a weapon system like this that gets and it gets turned around in the media, um, you know, I, I believe truth is important. I believe accurate, you know, accuracy and reporting is important. I'm not, I don't really 
I'm not I'm not being a pro-Israel guy here, or at least I'm not trying to be. But you know, you, you if you're if you're kind of making a hit piece on them almost, utilizing utilizing falsehoods based on the weaponry they're using, you're you're really doing a disservice. I mean, and this isn't any classified stuff. This is all on Wikipedia. This is this is easy stuff to research and find out. There's no excuse to be to be making a news story about you know uh, MLRS systems, you know, being being an inhumane weapon or white phosphorus being used, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, because it, there's no there's no evidence once you get into unpacking that that that's exactly what they're doing. You know, but that and it's it's uh, um, it's wrong. I believe you know it's wrong to do that for either side. Yeah, and it's a it's a very um, you know unfortunate situation, obviously, and you have. Yeah, people that that immediately jump to conclusions for, you know, things that happened in the past. I mean, in the past, uh, whether purposefully or not, I mean, journalists have been killed by Israeli fire, right? Whether it be sniper fire or what else, right? And Israel has, you know, tried to cover it up or not cooperate with investigations. So when you have something like that happen within the past three years at most, I can't remember that journalist's name, a Palestinian-American female, Um you know, that that leads people to jump to conclusions in a situation like this, right, where you have somebody killed across the border in Lebanon in counter battery fire. And again, it's a, it's an unfortunate situation, but things like this just happen in war. You know, John, you you talked about, you know, you got to expect counter battery fire right when they're getting shelled by Hezbollah, you know. Like currently, like at the moment, right, you got to expect counter battery fire and fog of war, you know tensions running high, you know, people got an itchy trigger finger, whatever, adrenaline pumping. And somebody in my comments mentioned like, well, the Israelis see something mounted on a tripod, you know, what do you think they're going to do? And it's like, that's kind of a grim way of putting it. But I mean, they're not wrong, you know? Um, and again, journalists got to do their job too, right? I mean, they're there for a job and they got to do it. It's just one of these unfortunate things where, um, you know, maybe it's not necessarily a, it's not malicious intent, right? It's just something happens, you know, some, you know, some uh, Israeli equivalent of a Lance Corporal or whatever, see something mounted on a tripod when they're current, they're like getting shelled right now at the moment and he reacts. It just happens. Sure. And you could do what you sure. can to mitigate that, right? But there's always going to be those, those incidents. And that's just yeah, an unfortunate reality of war, but that, that is the reality. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, one of the things, you know, the, one of the features of war is unplanned events. Um, you know, when, you, when one side or another chooses war, they they choose chaos. They they choose a future that that involves unplanned events that you can't predict, and uh, and you have a hard time controlling. Oftentimes, um, you know that that's it's it's easy to lose that in this, and you know they, the I think a lot of people may. Kind of believe that everything is planned out in a situation like that and they see something like that happen and they they immediately generalize oh the israelis are doing this or oh hamas did this and like you say and oftentimes it's that the, the the lowest point of failure you know the 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 squad leader who didn't have any other orders didn't know any better couldn't see what he was doing and ordered his guys to shoot you know the the guy that made a mistake and and doing his is plotting in the FDC for the artillery battery and put a, a six instead of an eight. You know, that, that that type of thing happens all the time. And it happens in high stress situations even more. And war is the highest stress situation. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, that, 
that's the type of thing that goes on. And it's, I think it's hard for people to understand that it's just a, it's a chaotic environment. Yeah, I mean, uh, another perfect example that comes to my mind is when uh, we had that round of fighting with Iran, we being the U.S., right, after uh, Soleimani got schwacked and you had the Iranian air defense that shot down that, I think it was like a Ukrainian uh, yeah. airliner, you know, right over Tehran. And it's like they they didn't do that maliciously. Excuse me. That makes no sense. Why Why would they do that on purpose? That's idiotic. Obviously, it was an accident. But and, and obviously scared. something needs to change right after something like that happens somebody needs to get you know what fired or demoted or whatever somebody needs to be held to account but it's like hey pressure's running high right they're expecting retaliation because that was right after they launched missiles at, at our guys in al-assad in iraq right and somebody somebody saw something their adrenaline was running high and they reacted and yeah, a lot absolutely. of people got killed because of it but it happens. It happens. It happens when tensions are high. Tensions are high right now for everybody. I mean, this has everybody, and I think I, I would agree with this, this has a risk of becoming a regional conflict. Yeah. It absolutely does have that risk. It carries that risk, and that's a significant risk. And everybody is on alert. Everybody's military forces are on alert. And, um, you know, I wish... I don't know if, if the, the, the powers that be and statesmen in the various countries quite understand that when you when you crank up the pressure on your on your military forces like that and you put them in an alert situation and you bombard them with media from various sides like that, that you increase the chances of something unplanned happening that you can't extricate yourself from, uh, you know, some type of event that you can't easily pull away from the table from uh, that you didn't order, that, that was unplanned. And uh, we're in such a situation right now. We're in such a time right now. You know, there's uh, all of all of the various players are a little bit nervous. Our our um, their forces are on alert, and and all it takes is one little thing, one little accident, so to speak. Um, and it becomes very hard to uh, to untie that knot. Yeah, yeah, and I I like that you brought up the the fact that this can very easily turn into a regional war. I think that's a perfect opportunity to talk about uh, the disposition of our forces in the region, right? Particularly our naval forces. Um, John Ian Ellis is a uh, kind enough to give you this this infographic before he posted it himself. This is a draft, um, but just looking at our forces here, we have two carrier strike groups that are set to be deployed just off the coast of Israel. They're not both there yet. I know the the Ford uh, carrier strike group is currently there in the Eastern Med, right? It looks like Ike is about halfway across the Atlantic, so it's well on its way. And then you have the Bataan uh, Amphibious Readiness Group with the 26 Mu in tow. It looks like they're about to enter the Red Sea, and then you have other ships as well, and you have some uh, Coast Guard cutters. It looks like are uh, close to the Indian Ocean, or sorry, is that the uh, Gulf of Oman? I think that's the Gulf of yeah, Oman the, area. That's the Gulf of Oman, and and so there's, there's a I think the vast I think not the vast majority, but I think 
by technicality, probably like 60% of, of our total naval force disposition in the area was supposed to already be there, right? So uh, I think it's important to uh, mention that that a lot of these forces wasn't part of like any type of surge um, in, in our forces. Um, there, uh, some of them are obviously um, having two carry strike groups in the Eastern Med is, is essentially indicative of a surge. Um, but like the U.S. Coast Guard cutters are probably there for anti-piracy, stuff like that. Um, that's probably why the baton was in the area as well. I don't want to say that positively, but I can more positively say that about the Coast Guard cutters because they're not necessarily going to be any type of force to deter, uh, um, you know, um, you know, long range precision fires and things and drones and things like that. They're not really built for that. I think I can't really specifically speak to the armaments on a Coast Guard cutter, but it's it's not much. I I don't think they have sea whiz either. Um, but uh. <laughs> But uh, yeah, so a lot of these forces are are were already in the region, but we now see them kind of converging on the more localized region of uh like the Red Sea, Northern Red Sea, and the Straits of Hormuz and other areas like that. Um, there there is also other forces in the area, but also forces that were already slated to be there, right? Like the I think there's a big a lot of confusion around the six Chinese warships that were in the area in the region. Uh, they were already supposed to be. Um, in the region for anti-piracy missions as well. So there's a lot of nations in that region strictly for anti-piracy. We're talking about Strait of Hormuz and the Gulf of Oman and things like that um, that are now getting repositioned and things like uh, as but by the, their respective nations because of the threat um, or the perceived threat in the area. Um, it's also, I think, important to note that there are nuclear exercises going on right now, also slated to happen. They were supposed to happen a long time before now. Um, NATO is holding their nuclear exercises. Steadfast noon is going ongoing. Has been for about a week. It's supposed to end in a few days, two days, the twenty sixth. Um, so there's there's strategic assets in the region as well too. Uh, there's B fifty twos in the region that have just been, I believe, just flew there this morning. Uh, um, so uh, there's a lot of repositioning going on, but a lot of people are attributing a lot, the 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 posture to something it not it wasn't necessarily there for. Um, and this is a region that it. Uh, historically has always kind of had a strong force posture, you know, from any respective nation that has interest in the region, just, just because of the volatility of the region itself. So um, I, I think that's the only reason we've been able to surge so many forces to this local, more localized region of uh, Israel and the Northern Red Sea so fast because they were already in the, the area. I think the furthest away, the asset that was furthest away would have been the Ike uh, CSG. Um, and they'll be there in about a week now. I think it's a two weeks before I mean, it's not even 100% clear where they'll exactly be positioned. I know the CENTCOM did say the Mediterranean, but I noticed that they refrained from saying Eastern Mediterranean when they said where it's going. So, But it, that was also slated to go um, uh, to the CENTCOM AOR anyway as well. So it'll be interesting to see what's going on there. Um, I know there's some British ships that have joined the task force as well, I believe. Either they've already joined or they're on the way. But it's yeah. like supply. British aviation as well. Yeah, exactly. I think the thing that is most important to note that was surge specifically surge because of the tensions would be the fixed wing assets a10s f16s the new jersey represent uh represented from my home state new jersey national guard uh, just arrived in the region as well f16 from the new jersey national guard so um th those you know fixed wing assets were surged to the region um specifically because of the the ongoing threat to u.s forces and i i can only expect our force posture to grow but i think you both mentioned a great point not to join on too long but about the you know the the idea that if everyone's on edge, the 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 chance that someone t makes a massive miscalculation is, is really high. And I think one thing that's important to note is that 
not everyone has kind of the standard procedures and the rigorous procedures that a lot of Western Armed Forces has. And where you kind of see the lack of these type of procedures is in this region, with the nations in this region when it comes to their armed forces. So while there may be a big checklist of things to do, and I think you, you and Chef both touched on a good point of how they shut down, the Iranians shut down this airliner. Well, you know, a, a guy sitting in a Patriot battery in, battery in Saudi Arabia might have this certain type of chest, checklist and certain type of people that they need to ask and and, and they need to run certain uh, things through hire before they make it, before they, you know, shoot down or launch. Um, you know, other nations might not have these checklists and they might not have these procedures and it might just be like, hey, whatever you want to do, bro, do it. Um, and so that's that's a, that's kind of where you're going to see those areas of miscalculation, I think. Um, I, I don't see it coming from like... Um, the U.S. by accident launching a, a long, like long-range precision fires against or PGMs on somebody by accident. We don't see that happening a lot with U.S. forces because of these rigorous procedures. So I think if there's one region where someone's going to make this calculate, it's going to be this one. Um, so I, I think he's absolutely right. And and when you add one more um, one more complication to it is that the, the main the kind of the main um, opponent here, the, the main state level opponent that everybody's looking at, Iran, tends to uh, exert force using proxies. Yeah. And proxies don't always do what you tell them to do. Proxies very often do their own thing and then ask you for permission after the fact. Proxies uh, don't always get the word correctly. Proxies are prone to miscommunications. They're prone to misunderstanding. They're prone to all these extra things more so than your own military forces. Um, you know, Iranian military forces are significant. They are. They're not a they're not a threat to, you know, the territorial integrity of the United States or anything. But they're definitely a regional threat to our forces in the area. I think I think we'd all agree on that. Yeah. But um, they're they're they're, you know, favored use of proxies adds another complication to that because, uh, you know, all of their proxy forces are on edge as well. All of their proxy forces are have gotten the word and all their proxy forces might have their own agendas as well. They might be itching to start something. Uh, you know, it's not a certainty that Iran knew this was coming when it was coming. I don't, I don't think that's, I don't think we could slap the table on that. It's very possible that there's uh, some IRGC generals that October 8th were throwing their hands up in the air and some uh, in some high rise building at Tehran, you know, asking, asking uh, a subordinate what the hell they were thinking. Um, you know, that is that is possible. Um, but, you know, of course, Iran would have to say that they that they had full control over this or whatever. They would have to say yeah. face or, or establish something like that. But I don't I don't think that's a certainty. Um, and their use of proxies adds another another complex factor to this that uh, that could result in something unplanned happening. It, 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 it only takes one one group to go ahead and launch a rocket attack at the embassy compound in Baghdad. And one of those rockets has to kill somebody important before this becomes an altogether different animal than it is right now. Yeah, and just to your point, I think uh, the likelihood of a proxy force kind of going OFP, right, doing uh, doing whatever it wants is is certainly much higher when you look at its motivations. I mean, these proxy forces, they aren't they aren't motivated by, uh, you know, territorial integrity or or sovereignty or national defense or whatever. I mean, this is from their point of view, a religious war, right? They're defending their Muslim brothers against occupiers or, or whatever the hell you want to call them. So when you have these religious motivations in play, I think the, the chances are that some, you know, 
IRGC uh, colonel or, or some proxy force commander kind of goes off the reservation and, and does what he thinks is best for the collective. Um, I could certainly see a situation where that happens, looking at the motivations. Yeah, and I think um, uh, both me and Shep have kind of been writing a, a kind of a co-piece uh, for the past couple of weeks, and we both have mentioned multiple times, I think we also mentioned this in the bulletin of our review, that it's important to remember, right, that uh, most all sides as of right now, like can't necessarily see the United States because we haven't necessarily done anything but shoot down stuff that flew over our heads, I guess you could say, or, or came at us. But uh, specifically Iran and other, uh, any other nations who may be behind any type of attacks or um, non-state actors uh, in the region right now, are, are all these actors are below the threshold of conventional warfare. And I, uh, it, it takes a very small thing to all of a sudden tip cross that line, just like you guys said, and kind of tip it over and do, for the pot to boil over, right? You can keep, if you keep things on a slow burn, all you have to do is turn the fire up for five seconds and it's boiling over. Um, and I think that's important to remember here that it's really hard to keep this level and I think this um, intensity of uh, sub-conventional warfare, if you could call it, I'm probably, you know, lingo in my terminology is not probably correct. But, you know, to have this type of uh, this uh, tempo of warfare, it's hard to keep it at this perfect tempo right here. And I, I don't see this being tenable long term. Um, and so at some at some point, someone's going to have to either escalate or someone's going to have to de-escalate. Obviously, I'm hoping that somebody de-escalates. But I only I only see more U.S. forces getting sent to the region. That's, per, that's just a personal opinion of mine that I think I don't see us decreasing our force posture anytime soon. I actually see us increasing it. And I I think a lot of this uh, kind of rests in Iran's lap right now, um, of, of, of whether they want to um, increase or decrease this. I think they can also turn up the, the uh, heat up on U.S. assets in the region as well. I don't think this is the extent of their capabilities uh, by within through proxies, just, just through them, right? Um, I think they can turn up the heat if they wanted to. Um, but we haven't seen them specifically target U.S. shipping um, um, the maritime uh, shipping and maritime trade yet yeah, that's a whole nother facet of this conflict that could get really really sticky and icky uh if if we want to talk about that as well too right the, the idea of uh, trade in the region right there's a lot of trade routes that go through the Suez Canal becomes a big thing as well as soon as any type of conflict goes up in that region so I think there's a lot of facets of this that can really go wrong really fast um and right trade is already constrained as as is right with the Ukraine conflict going on and tensions rising with China um so I, I think there's a, there's a lot to be kind of just, there's a lot on the scale right now and the smallest weight uh, in, in the opposite direction can uh, unbalance it. So it, it'll be interesting to see how kind of where this goes and, and who kind of uh, is the one to escalate or de-escalate it. Yeah, yeah to your... I, I, I agree with them 100%. And, and obviously I hope that there's a de-escalation here. Um, you know that this i don't run into a lot of people uh that that want this to become a war at least on this side of the ocean i'm not seeing you know i'm not talking to a lot of people in uniform that i that i was with or or that i that i know who actually feel like going to war over this situation um i do hope it becomes a de-escalation but it, it's um I, I do think a lot of it rests um in Iran's hands, but also in Israel's hands. You know, you uh, we were looking at the casualty figures earlier, and even even taking into account that you know it's it's highly probable that Hamas as a political entity is lying about these casualties. I'd say that's that's 
almost a certainty, but let, let's just say it's highly probable. Um, even taking that into account, we could, even if we chop this number that they gave in half, um, Israel has always already exacted a, a significant butcher's bill uh, for this for this attack that uh, that you know exceeds what they what they lost. I'm not suggesting that Israel should back away from the table. Um, you know, if you know, as we're talking about this long movie of this conflict that you know we're we're choosing to start right here in the end at October 7th, um, but it it was started by Hamas. They started this, 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 um, this chapter of the conflict was started by them. They initiated contact on this one. They initiated it. Uh, I don't, I, I don't think if you're a, if you're an Israeli, um, stakeholder, if you're an Israeli decision maker that you should, um, uh, leave them in any way, shape or form capable of doing something like this again. However, that gets worked out. But from a casualty standpoint, you're already exacting the significant toll on them. Even if, even if Hamas is lying about their casualty numbers to that extent, um, you know how many how many does it take? Uh, you know you've leveled. If you are rebelizing the entirety of North Hamas, that's also its own version of a butcher's bill, right? It'll be you know years before anybody can inhabit that portion of the strip again. Um, you you can you can kill a few more thousand fighters or you know Hamas associates, et cetera, et cetera, whatever you can. You can really extract a price from them without, without uh, launching this this impending ground invasion. I mean, Iran has already kind of given you what their kind of line they're willing to accept is like, hey, we you know we don't want a war, but you know you go in with ground forces, and they may not be lying. They you know they don't have 100% control over some of these organizations. I would say they probably have a lot of control over Hezbollah, but not 100%. Same thing for these pro these organizations in Iraq. They um, they might not. They, there may come a point when they might not be able to tell them no. Uh, they might not be able to rein them in. And uh, I think uh, if you're an Israeli um, decision maker, you should think about that, uh, and you should think about what level you're you're able to go to without this becoming a war that you may not want. I don't I don't think if there is a a large scale war with you know, Hamas, uh, Hezbollah North and Iran, I think obviously with our help, I, I don't, I don't think that war gets lost, so to speak, uh, with our help, but, uh, but who wins a lot of like, you know, a lot of people are going to die on both sides. A lot of people are going to die. A lot of people are going to, you know, uh, trade is going to get disrupted, uh, for years. Um, things are going to happen that, that are going to take, you know, a long, long time to even out. And I don't, I don't think anybody wants that on, on either side. So if you're, if you're an Israeli decision maker, how far do you push this? And, and do you choose a point where you back away and give, and give the Iranians a way out as well? Yeah. Yeah. I agree 100%. And I guess on that note, we could, we could get into this potential Israeli ground assault. So I think we're all of the opinion that Israel is is obviously going to launch a ground assault into Gaza at some point. I think we were all of that opinion, even, uh, you know, two, three weeks ago, whenever it was, we sat down for that bulletin review, right? And Shep, I thought you had some good points um, about what some of the implications for that may be, and also maybe some reasons why, in the grand scheme of things, maybe that's not the best idea, but... At the same time, it kind of has to happen for 
political reasons and and such like that. Yeah, yeah. I think politically Netanyahu doesn't have a lot of choice from his perspective. I don't, you know, he's got a lot of enemies at home. He's got a lot of people. He's got a lot of, he has to placate. Um, they're just looking for a reason to pin this on him. He has been up till now the, the prime minister that keeps us safe, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, he didn't do that. Um, every one of his people is looking for him to come down with that iron fist. And um, I think, you know, even though it might not be the great thing for the region slash world, uh, I, I do think, you know, he, he doesn't have a lot of choice but to order a ground assault. For the IDF's sake, if I was an IDF soldier, I would also uh, hope that they do things a little differently than they've done in years past. Because I, I have a, I just, I have a hard time thinking that Hamas leadership launched this assault without knowing that something like this would be coming back at them. I mean, Israel has a habit of returning actions like this tenfold. Sometimes, uh, you know, nobody would know that better than somebody who lives in Gaza and has grown up there their entire life. I, I, I have a hard time thinking they weren't going to get some type of retribution uh, like what we all think is coming. And for that reason, I, I suspect that they think they're prepared. They, they, might, they might even think that they might be able to win or at least uh, stall out a defensive campaign long enough to force a negotiated settlement. Um, I, I don't think they're correct in that. I doubt that, seriously. Um, but at the same time, the fact that they think it means that they're they're prepared to uh, they're prepared for it to happen. I don't know that that's I don't know that to be true, but I suspect it based on based on historical precedent. I think uh, I mean Israel. Uh, they definitely got their their work cut out for them if and when they launch this ground assault. Right? I know when we did that review, we we talked a little bit about 2014 when they went into Gaza, what that looked like. Um, it's just a nightmare, right? I mean, they they eventually, not even eventually. I mean, they got bogged down pretty quick, right? And they just pulled out and and basically leveled leveled the place. But I mean, you gotta. There's so many things you have to take into account, right? This vast uh, tunnel network, which I I actually have to write an article about. I'm gonna do that with uh with Aegis Group. One of their guys is a uh, Israeli, former Israeli military, and he has some experience with that. I'll write an article about that later. But this vast tunnel network that they call the the Gaza Metro, right? Hundreds of kilometers of underground tunnels right, that are very sophisticated. Um, obviously, again, very densely populated place. And um, I mean, buildings everywhere. So I, that is not uh, urban terrain you want to go through, right? I mean, you're facing threats from i mean literally all levels right and some of these buildings that have been destroyed are perfect places to set up fighting positions right uh snipers atgms right cornets um mortars ieds all over the place i mean they're they're definitely not going to have a fun time if you think uh our boys had a tough time in you know fallujah and and ramadi and places like that i can't imagine what the idf is going to have to face if and when they go into into these heavily populated areas yeah i think i think that right just to piggyback off of that right uh, we kind of saw in bakhmut as well the um what happens when you rebelize an area and how much harder it becomes to either take it or take hold of it and keep hold of it and consolidate your gains in that area um uh, you mentioned the tunnels um a follower had asked us a question about you know kind of how how can we see you know due to varying levels of ventilation 
depths and uh, the idea of how they're going to go about taking these tunnels in a, in a potential ground offensive. They also ask, um, right, what strategies might be good for capturing leadership, uh, Hamas leadership, that is, right, and make sure that door-to-door raids are effective at finding weapons, caches. Um, and, and so I think that's something that's really interesting that we can maybe touch on a bit here, right, is how hard and how much how hard of an operation one that, that, that this is going to be and two that this is guaranteed this is going to be a multifaceted uh, if there's a word that means more than multifaceted um operation um this is going to be it's going to be extremely complex and it's going to be extremely hard to do um uh, i i don't know if shep maybe you can expand a bit on what what we could see from a potential operation that is essentially aimed at grabbing leadership doing door-to-door rage um uh, getting rid of weapons caches, existing weapons caches that airstrikes didn't necessarily take out, as well as also, you know, search and rescue missions at the same time as a massive ground operations going on. I think they've amassed close to 300,000 to 500,000 forces right now, um, both in the north and the south. They're not all on the border of the Gaza Strip. But uh, that this is a large amount of forces, right? You know, we definitely see Israel trying to main, gain that, uh, you know, three to one overmatch that you ideally want to have at a minimum before you do offensive operations in uh, urban terrain so yeah yeah i would assume that a lot of these a lot of these strikes these precision weapon strikes either with surface to surface or with air to surface weapons in north gaza i would assume that they're targeting things like uh suspected um anti-tank guided missile firing points legacy sniper positions uh suspected atgm storage facilities um you know, anything, you know, marshalling areas, uh, maybe tunnel entrance, net, you know, tunnel network entrance points, uh, things like that. I, I, if I was a, an IDF armored crewman who, you know, the like, I, you know, we, we talked about um, the last time that they went in to Gaza with an, with a kind of a traditional armored centered force, armored infantry support. Uh, they did get bogged down pretty quick. They found out that, that Hamas did have some training with ATGMs. Uh, was equipped with uh, some some uh, uh, Soviet and Iranian systems that that were effective and used them effectively, and they took some casualties. I don't think there's any reason to think that that capability has gone away. Um, it's if anything, it's probably gotten better, and they may have some more effective equipment. Um, they, it's, you know, I, they probably don't have javelins or anything like that, but they definitely have some tube launched guided systems that are going to be a problem to deal with. Um, if, if, if the IDF is going to do this, um, in the, in the way to mitigate the most, the most casualties, I think we would see kind of a thing like we're seeing right now. They're trying to rubbleize the entire area and turn it into as close to a two dimensional fight as they can, uh, in which they're going to have the advantage. You know, they're taking away all the elevated terrain, uh, by dropping the buildings. Um, they're they're taking away uh, their capability to to move around at those buildings for cover. You know we're turning all those into piles of concrete, which are bad enough. Uh, those are going to be you know that you can fortify those, but you're changing the makeup of the terrain and the makeup of the video game so that the person that's lived there their entire life doesn't recognize anything anymore. Oh, what street am I on now? Oh, I forgot. You know and. And that might be uh, enough that they can turn it into that two-dimensional fight and have the advantage again. Uh, again, the problem with that is uh, the, you know, the, the world watching doesn't really like it, for one thing. It takes a lot of ordnance to do it. You're going to run through your stockpiles really quick, even as small of a place as Gaza. 
Um, and you're still going to have a problem. You're still going to go to a place that's nothing but rubble with a lot of people that are hell-bent on defending it. You're still going to take a lot. Even, even doing that, you're still going to take a lot of casualties. Um, I'm not saying I know a better way to do it. I, I don't. But uh, I, I do. And for that reason, I do think they should, they should really think long and hard about what they're willing to call a win here. And, and if there's a way to try to, to try to call this a win again, I don't think, I don't think Netanyahu is going to do that, but I hope he does. Yeah. And that's interesting, right? We already see the Israeli armor adapting to what, what, you know, things we've seen in Ukraine, we see them uh, donning the slat armor and, you know, we've already, they already have used the ball and change in the, in the space between the turret and the chassis, um, you know, to deter things like RPG shape charges as well. But the slot armor is kind of a new thing. I think a lot of people are kind of denigrating slot armor, um, you know, saying, you know, uh, you know, the Russians are doing this because they don't have a, an, another viable deterrence to, uh, you know, loitering munitions and other things like that or ATGMs. But no one really does. If, you, if we're going to be honest, I think when it comes to affordability, I had a good conversation with somebody um, who, who works. They're either uh, doctrine adjacent or they or they, they help write some of the doctrine. Um, for some FMs and other things for the armed forces for the DOD, um, and they were kind of talking about how the, the slot armor is probably the best thing that they have right now. Um, and they all they made all the exact points that you just made right now, right? How the, to minimize the three dimensional aspect of the of this of the ba in oncoming battle, um, because you, the last thing you need is fires coming from every single which way. You want to be able to predict where they're going to be coming from, and, and also dictate where they'll be coming from the best of your ability. And I think slide armor is a big thing we see is really tanks um, more and more now. It's kind of forced wide now. We see their, their armored battalions getting, um, and brigades getting equipped with slide armor. Well, just a week and a half ago when this whole thing started, there was that, you know, and again, thank you Hamas for putting your, putting your tax out there on the internet so that we can analyze them and critique you and kind of le learn lessons from what you're doing. But, um, you know, they, they took out that Merkva that Merck from Mark IV on uh, the first day of the engagement with uh, with some type of of drone uh, dropping a shape charge onto the onto the top of the tank, you know, and then and then there was a video of them pulling the driver out and et, et cetera, et cetera. But um, you know, at, for whatever else they are, you could say they're asleep at the wheel. Maybe they weren't prepared for an attack, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, that that tank weapon system uh, was vulnerable to that. You know, it was vulnerable to a um, you know, a, a warhead that it wouldn't traditionally be vulnerable to from the sides, front or the back. Um, and, and, and they were able to, and you, if you think about the cost differential as well, we got a quadcopter, we got an RPG warhead and we got, you know, and we're in business and we're taking out a multi, you know, tens of millions of dollars, a piece of equipment. Um, you know, if it did have that type of armor on it, it might have, it might've had better protection, et cetera. Um, but still, even 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 putting that on, I think they're they are going to take losses if they go in and, and try to turn this into a, a slug match. Um, even with all the preparatory fires, even turning it into a two dimensional battlefield as much as they can, even with even even with it, you know expend all remaining as far as the airstrikes are concerned, I still think it uh, it's going to be costly. If there's not an easy way to do a fight like this with the enemy that they're trying to do it to. Yeah. Yeah. I think uh, going back to tanks, I mean, a lot of people like to look when a tank gets destroyed and they say, oh, the tank is obsolete. You know, look, it's it's uh, it's vulnerable. Right. We need to get rid of it. It has no place on the battlefield. And that's uh, uh, 
not not really a sound way of thinking, right? I mean, everything's vulnerable. I know I, I brought up the chieftain last time we did that bulletin review. He said something like, um, if we if we got rid of you know weapon systems based off their vulnerability, then we would have got rid of the infantrymen a long time ago, right? Obviously. Um you're gonna take losses when you go into a situation like this. Again, it's war that happens. The best you could do is just try and mitigate those losses the best you can. You know, we've seen uh, Merkava's adding the uh, the roof screens or cope cages, whatever you want to call them, right, to sort of mitigate from from whether it be, uh, you know, munitions dropped by drones or suicide drones, the like. Obviously, slat armor, that's important, right? Um, you kind of talked about, like, the ball and chains between the the turrets and the and the chassis, and then obviously you got reactive armor as well. I, d- I don't know if the Israelis use that. I think they might. I'm not too entirely sure my they point is to, i know they used to i haven't seen it on any of the new mark four uh variety but they in legacy versions of it they were they were very reactive heavy. in fact they were one of the first users of reactive uh armor if i if i remember correctly they may even be one of the first developers of that um okay. uh, for one reason or another in the newest version of it they don't think that it, either they don't think it's going to be effective or there's there's something in the composition of the the new Merkabas that's uh that that you know equals equals the old legacy ones with reactive but they they definitely used to yeah i i, I don't think I, you know i there's definitely a place for the tank um when used correctly with used with you know that, that's where tactics comes in that's where people come in you know people are yeah. more important than things people tactics things um i don't think the tank is needs to go anywhere anytime soon that you know people have been predicting its demise for a long time it's still here i do think that the advantage pendulum has swung in the favor of the defender for a while uh technology has pushed uh pushed it in the favor of the defender you know with all of the deadly things to the tank that are out there obviously uh hamas has been watching what's going on in ukraine the last couple of years and has learned from it you know their 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 drone their drone tech is uh, is effective. They already proved that it's effective against Israeli armor. They've proved that their ATGMs were already effective. We know that. They're, you know, and like we talked about, their, their tactics and weapon systems on that front have probably gotten better. They don't have much of an air force, but uh, you know, with the if they do control the airspace up from zero to five hundred feet with quadcopters, uh, what what more do you need? You know, they they can put ordnance over the heads of guys. Uh, and and drop it down, and that that changes the dynamic of the battlefield one, a, a little bit. Yeah, yeah, one hundred percent. Yeah, yeah, definitely the availability the availability of technology to to your average person, right? You don't have to be have a multi billion dollar uh, defense budget now, right, to provide uh, what essentially could be called close air support. I think we be, we see a lot in Ukraine right now as well. Um, because they can't necessarily provide uh, air superiority and they can't, they don't necessarily control the air, but from, but from zero to 500 feet, they, they can with quadcopters and, and small UAS uh, capabilities that um, people crowdsource in the United States and across the, the, the world to send to Ukraine and other places like that. The idea that you can crowdsource fires is, is kind of weird, but it, it, it is pretty interesting. Um, I think that it, it, that also kind of gets into a bit of a, uh, Shep, you were talking about kind of the scope of and, and the size of this and the amount of fires that's going to be used in the munitions. Um, you know, we see United States diverting uh, a large amount of uh, 155 ammunition um, to, uh, I think, quoted, they're saying tens of thousands. They haven't said 
which which is a, just a couple months of production wise, but it shows the kind of fight that they're they're readying for because they're obviously not expending tens of thousands of one five five rounds as we speak right now, right? They're largely using precision uh, guided munitions and precision fires to um uh to respond to um uh the strikes by Hamas and and Hezbollah and other uh, uh actors in the region. But uh, I think that does kind of speak to the scope. And then sustainment is another thing that kind of comes to my mind. Are they going to be able to sustain this without, um, you know, consistent new support? I mean, I know the right defense officials continually say we can walk and chew gum, which I trust that we can walk and chew gum. Um, but at some point, right, you know, we can't support, you know, three war two wars going on um, in two different regions and actively combat China uh, effectively while our economy is stable at home, right? If we want to go into a war footing, that's a different story. But um, it, with this current economy, the way it's built right now, I don't think we can necessarily maybe sustain that. And more importantly, I don't think Israel is going to be able to sustain that type of combat uh, indefinitely for too long. That's that's the real question. I don't I don't know their their population is not the same as it was uh, when the nation was formed. It's not the same. It's not the same generation that fought the wars in '67 and '73, um, and you know it's it's a different population now there's I, I don't remember the percentage but there's a large percentage of the population that doesn't serve in the military anymore yeah either, i believe it's over either, half at this point i believe it's over half at this point either so, being yeah. either, uh bedouin or ultra orthodox um you know that shrinks the numbers that they that of manpower that they have available to them um and that that also reduces that martial spirit and martial attitude of the populace um i don't think the government is going to have a too much trouble channeling the anger of the population in the wake of this for right now. However, I, you know, much like kind of what happened to us after 9-11, everybody was, um, you know, full of rage. Uh, but, you know, just a couple of year, a years later, you know, Iraq was a very controversial thing. And it was controversial because the nature of the population had changed. They weren't prepared for a long, drawn-out conflict and a lot of coffins to come home. We're just talking about a couple of thousand coffins. We're not talking about a lot in the great scheme of things. We're certainly not talking about a lot if we're thinking of the numbers of coffins that I think the IDF might see if they really want to drive south all the way to the Egyptian border in Gaza in a long, drawn-out fight. Um, and I don't know that the Israeli population in its current form has the stomach to support something like that. Yep. So... Shep, I know you got to get going here in a few minutes. We'll start to wrap this thing up just real quick. What do, what do we think about uh, the potential of Hezbollah joining in if Israel launches this ground assault? Obviously, that's a big concern for them. I, I, what I would say on that is uh, I, I think, um, and I do believe someone might have asked the question to us as well, of, you know, kind of how does Lebanon kind of, what's the dynamic within Lebanon, within the government? you know, as it pertains to the government and Hezbollah. Um, and uh, I, I do think that at some point, right, Lebanon as a state, right, is going to kind of put their foot down and say, okay, we, we cannot afford, and we've seen a lot of this from um, kind of like uh, native Lebanese people, right? We can't necessarily afford um, to have this kind of state-on-state -state warfare um, with Israel. There's no way we can afford that. And there is this fear that uh, Hezbollah might induce that if they get more involved. We've already kind of seen Hezbollah kind of make these statements, and their and their right their actions aren't necessarily meeting their rhetoric, right? Uh, uh, because according to them, they entered the war right a couple of weeks ago, and we see you know sparse uh, you know sparsely separated uh, ATGM strikes every day 
here and there. We see some rockets here and there, but no big, nothing on the scale of what Hamas launched, nothing of what we know they're capable of. Um, I, I don't see, honestly, I don't see Hezbollah joining the fight um, really any more than they are right now. And I could be dead wrong right tomorrow or right now. They could be all of a sudden launch a mass invasion. But I think if they were going to do that, right, they should have done it in concert and simultaneously with Hamas's incursion, right? Because now there's a large, large, um, not only armored, but just um, infantry um, IDF element that's now on that border. Hamas is not going to be able to penetrate that. They're not even really going to be able to combat that effectively now. So if they were going to do this, they should have done it before this. these forces were kind of marshaled in that area, I think. I don't see them doing it. I also don't see Iran kind of letting them do it. But right, there's always that... Um, there's always that spatial miscalculation, like Shep said before, right? They just your proxies may not always listen to you. But I think Hezbollah uh, is more connected to Iran, obviously, than Hamas is, and they're also more beholden. Their survival is more um, contingent on Iranian support than Hamas's is as well. And so I I see them not escalating too much more than where they are right now. Yeah, I uh, I agree. I I. In, in regards to Hezbollah, I, the way I see Hezbollah and the way I, I kind of interpret their actions the last, the last week or so, uh, the, last, the last time that they had significant action against the IDF was 2006. And, and the, I think those guys, the guys that participated in the war in 2006, are probably you're going to find those guys at probably the, com the company command level now um, or whatever their equivalent is, uh, senior command structure, et cetera. Uh, they're a bit older. They're a bit wiser. Uh, they probably have mellowed uh, a bit. Uh, the younger guys uh, that are that are on the line, the guys that are itching to go, uh, probably weren't old enough to see action in that conflict. You know, you get a, a weird dynamic there in a military force or even a paramilitary force like they are. You got a a, young, a younger force which is really eager, really really wants conflict. And you got some of these older, older commanders and older uh, guys that, you know, were that guy, but are now a bit more hesitant. They, they have maybe an, an older man's wisdom. I see Hezbollah doing, doing some things that uh, strike me as younger guys getting itchy trigger fingers in certain, in certain aspects, younger, younger, small unit commanders uh, making calls on their own um, outside of, outside of, uh, of their command uh, level or, or doing the bare minimum that they need to do to save face, to say, yeah, we're firing a few shots across the border. We're taking out a few ISR assets. We're shooting some rounds. We've killed a few Israelis, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but I don't see the actions that they've done so far as the actions of, a, of an organization who is really uh, intent on coming, uh, coming at the IDF in force. They're not at least from what I've seen, you know, watching the open source news that you guys have been watching, they're not doing a lot of the shaping type activities that we would normally see. They're not, uh, they're not utilizing a lot, utilizing a lot of their capabilities uh, to, to, to kind of shape the battlefield or to attempt to shape the battlefield to, uh, to prepare for a major incursion or some type of a major incursion. Mostly what I see is, is them again, small, you know, engagements, small utilizations of weapons. Um, you know, there's that they, you know, they shot an ATGM at a vehicle checkpoint. Okay, good. Uh, you could, you could call that a shaping operation, I suppose, but that, that vehicle checkpoint was manned as soon as, as soon as they were done with it. Um, I, I see them doing, uh, saving face saving measures. Um, 
And because I see them doing that, I don't, I don't see them very eager to get into the conflict. But like we talked about before, uh, they might, they might not be able to, to stop it either. You know, they might have, you know, we do, they're, they're much more dependent on Iran for their funding, for their supplies, for, for everything else. And, um, you know, they, they do take a certain amount of orders for them. And these old guys might not be able to rein in the young guys if something starts happening in Gaza. You know, they might they might have a point themselves that they might not be able to pull back from as an independent organization. But right now, their actions don't strike me as the actions of uh, an organization that was preparing for an all-out um, fight to the death. They, they strike me as the actions of an organization that was posturing and posturing with the intent of like, hey, give us a way out and, and we'll move away from the table here. Yeah, yeah, great answers, guys. And, and just a quick note, I mean, in Lebanon, you have plenty of other armed groups other than Hezbollah that that's our, uh, yeah, itching, itching for a fight, I guess you could say, right? So they're, they're not the only ones to look out for. And uh, the other ones are kind of, uh, like I was saying, they're OFP, they kind of do their own thing to a certain extent but um i think we have pretty much ended off here boys i i know you got to get going ship and something i should have mentioned before you will be taken over as the uh centcom desk chief for bolton from the borderlands right because s24 it had some active duty obligations so we won't be able to do that anymore so thanks for that and i know we're all looking forward to your work 100 percent it's gonna be awesome working with you, man. Yeah, likewise, likewise. I liked our uh, collaboration so far. Yeah, definitely. All right, gents. Well, uh, yeah, that was that was really good, and um, yeah, we'll uh, let you get out of here, and we'll get together at some point and do this again. I'm sure. All right, guys. Sounds good. Have a good night. Yeah, great conversation. Good talking to you guys. Yeah. See you boys later. Hey everybody thank you for listening to that episode i know we uh we all hope you really enjoyed it and we all had a good time doing it and hopefully we'll be able to get together soon and do another one of these for you guys i want to thank you all for supporting this podcast of course it means a lot to me you can find this on your favorite apps that includes spotify google podcast apple podcast wherever you listen we're there you could find us on twitter and instagram at analyze educate that is all one word we are also on telegram analyze educate Please consider supporting us again on Patreon, patreon.com slash analyze educate, ko-fi, ko-fi.com slash analyze educate, or at Substack, analyzeeducate.substack.com. Again, all those links are in the show notes below. Also, be sure to leave us a five-star rating on the app used to listen to this podcast. That helps us out a lot as well. That is all I have for you guys right now. We will see you soon.